0: Welcome back to season two of the Ivy League Prep Academy podcast, equipping you to successfully pursue the college of your dreams. We believe everyone deserves to reach their full potential, and the admissions process shouldn't hold you back. We're live on Zoom, and it is an absolute pleasure to be here with you guys today to talk about this topic. I'm not sure that there is a more timely or more important topic uh, and we'll understand a little bit more about that in just a minute when we get into the details and, and into the content of this uh, masterclass. But I have spent a lot of time on this. I've joined forums, uh, education forums. I have listened to forums. I interviewed the head of AI uh, for for uh, um, Google in Asia. This is someone who is impossible to get in touch with because she is constantly traveling around the world giving keynote speeches and, um, and talking to even government officials and things like that about AI. And, and uh, she's a become a personal friend. And so we spent quite a bit of time talking through some of these issues that we'll talk about today. And I interviewed uh, an expert who I'm actually bringing on, a high school student who wrote a book about AI and how we can use AI in our education. He actually just presented at the Global Impact Conference a few days ago. Uh, and he's going to be joining us today as well. I think we've got a lot to look forward to. And with that, let's dive right in. Because uh, <laughs> I want to take you down a trip or take, take you on a trip down memory lane. For those of you who are parents, and uh, I know we're probably about two-thirds teens, one-third parents, maybe uh, some similar ratio. But there are some parents here and some teachers i know there's at least one guidance counselor who is planning to, to join us as well so we've got uh, a diverse group here and those of you who remember 1995 ish that was about when the internet was starting to become a little bit more common around you know everyday people all right so the internet had existed in a very different form for a while where some universities were connected to other universities. But when it started to really become a thing that people accessed regularly, it was about the early to mid-90s. And these are some pictures of what the 90s was like. This is what Amazon.com looked like, you guys. (laughs) This was Amazon.com. This was the Google of the time, AltaVista. That was what kind of Google looked like back then. Of course, there was no Google yet. And so this was, you know, uh, this was a very different time. And the internet was a bit of a shock. Okay. Uh, the, the internet was a game changer for a lot of reasons, but we didn't really know what was coming. Uh, for those of you who, again, are, are not born, we're not born after 2000. Uh, Those of you who are parents here or teachers, uh, this might look familiar as well. This is awfully similar to what our first computer looked like in my home. Um, This is a computer with way less computing power than, you know, your phone has today. I mean, substantially less computing power. Uh, But this is what a computer looked like. And on a computer, we could type, we could print documents, we could do some really cool things. But in order to get there, for those of you who were born after the 90s, for those of you who have never experienced this, I just want to help you set the stage. Okay, because at about that time, this was not my library, but I couldn't find a picture of my actual high school library. I don't know of any high school library that looks this beautiful. But uh, still, you can imagine, just kind of imagine going into a library because when I was in high school, the only way to access the internet is if there was one computer in our high school, first of all, uh, that was connected to the internet. Okay, so in order to log into that one computer, that computer was in the middle of the open style library. Okay, so this wide open room, tons of books everywhere, quiet study areas everywhere, not allowed to talk, right? And the only people who could log into that computer were teachers or members of the debate team. And I was on the debate team. So I was one of the privileged few who could access the internet. And uh, just imagine, here I am, 14 years old, 15 years old, walking into the library, walk to the very middle of this open library, and then let's see if this works. I hope this works. This is what it sounded like, you guys, those of you who are teenagers, before you could access the internet, you had to log on to the internet. And the internet happened through phone lines. And so that might be strange to think about, but we actually used the phone lines to transfer the ones and zeros from one place to another so that we could get data across the internet. So we used phone lines, which now people don't even use phone lines, right? We did everything cellular. But at the time, that's what we used was phone lines. And this is what it sounded like when we connected a computer to the Internet. connected. That was what it really looked like, you guys. (laughs) And I have a feeling that I'm not the only one laughing, because I think that there are some parents here who are really taking a trip down memory lane right now with me. Uh, This is exactly what it was like, you teens out there, you teens who are listening. This is what it was like to log on to the internet. And it literally took some, I mean, that was an efficient one. That was only 33 seconds. Sometimes it took two or three minutes of that back and forth arguing with the phone line before it would finally connect. So that was, you guys, that was what a computer looks and sounds and feels like. And accessing the internet, that's what it meant. And I kid you not imagine you're going to this computer right here. Once we had a computer in my home, which happened a few years later, uh, this is kind of what it looked like. It'd be on a desk in the home and you would log on and try to get to uh, a newspaper article, right? Whoops, wrong, wrong thing first. I try to log on and get a newspaper article. And, uh, and so I would, I would click on the article from Alta Vista, right? And then go downstairs and make myself a sandwich because by the time I finished my sandwich, about eight minutes later, come back upstairs, start eating my sandwich, and what do you know? The article had already begun populating. I could begin reading this article. Now, there were no sound files, there were no pictures. <laughs> if there was a picture, it was tiny, right? <laughs> Pixelated. Uh, it was just text uh, and some ads eventually. It was just text, but that text, would take minutes to populate, all right, and that's what the internet looked like, felt like, sounded like, that's what the experience was, and oh my goodness, we were so excited. We were so excited because this is so much faster than driving to the library, looking up the article, and finding the microfiche, pulling out the microfiche, putting it under the, you know, the big projector monitor things you kind of look under and find that microfiche, and then printing out this article that was five or six or eight years old. It was so much faster to click on a link, go downstairs, make a sandwich, come upstairs, eat your sandwich, and by the time you're finished, you'd be able to read half the article already. And you could print it within 10 more minutes. And that was way faster than the four or five or six hours that it would have taken to find that same article at the library okay uh and i see in the comments yeah Gulnar, this is a trip down memory lane right like this is what it was like and uh and, and that's just the reality so at that time i saw the internet as this really cool way to access newspaper articles that i could use on the debate team right as a member of the debate team It was helpful for me to get news faster and to acquire evidence, right? For my cases that I was debating. And it was so great to have that access. And a lot of people, that's what the internet meant to them. It was faster access to news and information. Some people didn't just get excited about an email, right? Which by the way, we were so excited about email back in the day. Oh, you've got mail? You know, you'd you'd hear a buzz, a notification that you got a new email and stop what you're doing and go find out who is emailing you. Uh, Some people didn't just stop at being excited for email and to be able to find articles. Some people realized, wait a minute, this is a game changer. Right. The way that I communicate with people, the way that I find people has just changed. And if I've got an entrepreneurial mind, if I've got an idea, if I want to reach out to more people, if I want to connect with those people, I can now do that easier because of the internet. And so some people shifted their mindset. They didn't stop with just kind of being excited about the little things that the internet could do. And they realized that the internet removed barriers to success. They could now start a business faster, easier, more effectively than they could before. They didn't need a million dollars to buy a building downtown just to test out their ideas. They didn't need tens of thousands of dollars to renovate that building or hundreds of thousands of dollars to renovate that building or to rent that space, right? They could get to market faster, easier. They could communicate with people directly through email and they could collect money even online. And the internet created millionaires so many millionaires and for the last 20 years you teenagers and even your parents out there for the last 20 years we've been hearing people talk about how man if i just had this idea if i knew what was coming i could be a millionaire right now if i would have done this or that at the beginning before everyone else started doing it i'd be a millionaire and it's true the internet created a lot of millionaires But at the same time, the internet also created a lot of anxiety. A lot of anxiety, especially among teachers, especially in the education field, right? It was not unusual for people to argue and debate about the effects of this World Wide Web on education. Because suddenly, wouldn't it be easier for students to collaborate with each other and to cheat? Wouldn't it now be easy for for two people in different parts of the planet to share about a standardized test score, standardized test questions? Couldn't someone in an earlier time zone finish the SAT and then email a friend the questions before that friend took their SAT? And the answer is yes, all of these things could happen. And all of these things did happen right? The internet opened up new problems in education until the educators began to figure out how to do education with the internet, right? And the internet was not the first villain of education. It wasn't the first time that teachers and parents really, really worried about a new tool destroying education. Because a few decades before the internet, Ooh, we had the Casio 14A. The calculator. In about 1957, apparently, I had to look this up. I wasn't here for that. But in the 1950s, the late 1950s, suddenly a tool became available that allowed you to calculate things quickly and accurately, (laughs) right? And this simple calculator that, that we grew up with when I was in school and when your parents were in school, you, you who are teachers here, when we were in school, what did teachers say to us all the time? You're not going to have your calculator with you on some d- out in the desert when you need to do calculations. You need to be able to do these on paper. You need to be able to calculate this stuff on paper and in your head. And we all mostly believed it, right? Like, yeah, I don't have my calculator in my pocket all the time. How could I possibly have a calculator with me all the time? Of course, I need to learn to calculate. And uh, what teachers did not say at the time is that the act of calculating, learning to figure out mathematics, changes your brain. It allows you to learn and to think in ways that you cannot think if you don't learn how to calculate that's the value of learning to calculate because today, of course, we do have a calculator in our pocket all the time. Even if we're on a deserted island, the one thing we're almost certainly going to have is our phone, right? Like the one thing you don't leave home without is your phone. And so you're going to have that phone on a deserted island. You're going to have a calculator. All those fears that our parents and our teachers instilled in us 20, 30 years ago, Uh, did not come to fruition because we do have a calculator in our pockets. However, the way that your brain rewires when you learn how to, to, to solve a quadratic equation does not change, right? Your brain is better because you learned to do the thinking, because you learned why the way that you calculate something calculates that way. Interestingly enough, if all you learned was how to memorize the different calculations the way that math used to be taught, if that's all you learned, then, yeah, your brain probably didn't change as much as it could have, okay? So just for those of you you parents who are frustrated by your elementary school kids' new math and the way that math is taught today, uh, it is just an order of magnitude, two orders of magnitude better than the way math was taught when we were growing up, because it teaches the children how to think about numbers. The the calculations are meaningless, right? We have calculators that can do that every single time more effectively than us. The calculations are not the important thing. Learning to think and the way that learning to think changes your brain and rewires your brain is the important thing. And educators have evolved dramatically, right? Today, education in elementary school, middle school, high school, and, to a lesser extent, uh, college is all substantially better than it was 20 years ago. All right, so we figured out how to use calculators and we learned that calculators are not the, uh, you know, the villain. I, I did go back and listen to an interview and I read an old article from like more than 50 years ago about a professor who did not allow uh, students to use calculators for homework or on exams because it just was cheating. And I, I laughed, you know, it sounded so similar to what we're hearing today. And the point is, you know what, whether it's the 1950s and we have a new calculator for the first time, the 1990s and the internet connects us differently for the first time, here we are today. And if if the difference is having generative IA, right? Uh, and how difficult that can be because there's a lot of discussion today in education about How do we continue to educate in a world of Gen AI, right? Like, what are the things that that students can be doing? Well, that brings me to my interview with Renee Lowe, okay? She is uh, literally the head of AI for Google in Asia. Um, Before she was the head of AI for Google, she was the head of AI for Microsoft. And before that, she led AI at Amazon. I'm not joking. Like this is this is someone who is um, very very aware of this world and what AI means and what the implications might be. And through my interviews with her, she had to get permission from Google to be interviewed on my podcast. I strongly recommend you listen to that interview. Uh, just a really good interview about AI and how it's going to impact parenting and education uh, and how it might affect impact projects, which we get to talk about a little bit later today as well in this masterclass. But we got to talk about the whole gauntlet, right? We went through this entire, uh, this entire idea of what this all means and how we should be thinking about this. And among the highlights from my several conversations with her, even email collaboration, as she's fascinated by what we're doing in the Ivy League challenge. And, and she's been asking questions about, you know, uh, about what I'm doing. So anyway, this kind of budding relationship has been very, very helpful. One of the highlights that I want you to think about is where we began this masterclass, right? 25 years ago, 30 years ago, the internet removed barriers to business and it created millionaires. So many millionaires. Uh, it also created the dot dot.com boom and bust, but uh, it, it created even you know past the bust, past the 2001 uh, internet bubble bust, it created so many millionaires and it sustained massive companies. The biggest companies in the world did not exist, could not exist without the internet, right? That's just the reality. Compared to the opportunity that we have today, the internet created little tiny fish. The opportunities that AI is creating for people today will dwarf what the internet could do. There is no question about that. Um, Renee speaks in far stronger terms than I do. And the reason for that, I believe, is because she knows with way more certainty than I do. She's been seeing this coming for a couple decades. AI has not, is not new. It's you know transformation into something that the common person can use is relatively new in just the past few months but AI has been changing business for a long time. And they're, you know people who have expertise in how to use AI are already the most marketable people in the open market. They're the most sought after people in the open market. And this trend will continue. All right. There is no question about that. Um, so that's interesting. Okay. The, the millionaires and billionaires that will be created with this new opportunity, uh, we, just, we just can't even quite yet imagine what is coming. Just like in 1995, we could not imagine, you know, carrying around a computer with far more computing power in our pockets uh, than, than what the internet allowed us to do back then. Um, here's one of the differences today. So if 25 years ago, the internet removed barriers to business so that we didn't have to rent a building space. We didn't have to buy a building downtown and buy all this inventory and everything else before we could even get started. Now we could open up an online store and sell our products immediately. Now we could open up an online store and sell our services immediately. Um, the internet allowed for that, right? And it allowed you to start a business with about a, le- a million less dollars of, of capital upfront. Well. Those businesses have been growing and expanding and businesses it'd be hard to argue that a full-fledged functioning successful business isn't less productive than a smaller business, right? Like these big businesses have an army of workers ready to go. And the CEOs of big companies are judged based on how well they use those those workers, right? Like how How productive your company is, how successful your company is, depends on how you use your army of workers. If you have 60,000 employees, how do you use them? Because that is by far the biggest expense to your company, but it's also your biggest opportunity. If you can use your 60,000 employees effectively, then you can increase your profits. Uh, And so the success of the CEO, the success of the business itself depends on how wise the leader is, how wise the CEO is in using that army of people that they have available to them. That's what it's going to come down to. Now, today, even a 13, 14 year old, even a young teenager has an army of workers available to use for free. But the question is still the same. Everyone has that army of workers. Your success, your ability to produce and be productive depends on how well you use that army.